courage and weakness. Welcome, we have another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot, who called us to live to a higher standard and not be satisfied with just a little empty, shallow religion. As the series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others who are influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. Good to have you with us. Well, as usual, we have two Gateway to Joy programs. We have part five and six of Appreciation for Men. Our overall theme, both courage and weakness. We have one man's courage and the fear of weakness. Well, as we think about courage and even fear and weakness today, we'll be thinking about the death of Jim Elliott, about submission, and about Elizabeth going to live with the Alcas, as we hear from Samantha Lagoy, a friend of Elizabeth who was a caregiver for her in her last years. And we'll hear from Valerie Elliott Shepard when the five men were threatened by the Alcas. Did they use their guns? And if not, why not hear about that later? Right now, it's part five of Appreciation for Men, One Man's Courage. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliott, talking with you today about one man's courage. I had a marvelous letter from a wife who told me this story. Three years after she had been at the Urbana Missionary Convention, where I was a speaker, she told me that she married her husband, Jerry Fuller, a wonderful man who demonstrated zeal for Christ, a passion for souls, and a beautiful compassion for hurting broken people who needed to know the healing love of Jesus Christ. Following seminary and student pastorates, he became a prison chaplain and an inner-city missionary. Then he married Barbara, and together they worked in St. John, New Brunswick, with street kids, ex-convicts, and glue sniffers. The time came, and I'm paraphrasing her letter here, when Barbara saw Jerry seeking the Lord with such great intensity it made her question her own commitment to Christ. Was she prepared to die to self as he was? What was it that drove him to pray as he did, at least once until four in the morning? Was her own love for the Lord as deep as his? Or was it perhaps shadowed by her love for her husband? Jerry had a nephew named Gary, a quiet guy with an artistic nature and talents that had been squelched as a child, leaving him very insecure and undisciplined. Gary couldn't hold down a job. He got in trouble with the law, and when relatives consented to his using their vacation cottage, a neighboring cottage was broken into. The owner called Jerry to say that his gun had been taken. Gary was the prime suspect, but they didn't want to call the police until they had called Jerry. Jerry was scared stiff, but he knew what he had to do the next day put his whole trust in God, go to the cottage, try to persuade his nephew to turn himself in. He and Barbara went to bed. Next morning when they prayed together, he asked the Holy Spirit especially to strengthen Barbara in raising little Josh and Ben. Should she go with him to see Gary? She was relieved that his answer was no. 
If anything happens to him, the children will need me, was the thought that flashed into her mind. Jerry said goodbye. Barbara fasted, prayed, cared for the little boys, worked in the garden, and waited. All day she waited. He did not come. Oh, well, Jerry was always late for everything, she said to herself. No doubt they were deep in conversation. He had tried so often to help Gary. Lord, may he help him now, she prayed. At last, the sound of a car. Eagerly, Barbara looked up from her weeding. It was the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. She froze, then fell to the ground, sobbing. Jerry was dead. But looking up at the bewildered faces of her sons, four and two years old, she pulled herself together, took their little hands, and told them Daddy was with Jesus, and they wouldn't see him again for a long time. From that point on, she said, there was a sense of being carried through the whole dreamlike event. God surrounded me with his presence, and an overwhelming sense that it's all right. I knew he was in charge. The murder was a deliberate act. Gary is serving a life sentence in a penitentiary with some who were led to Christ through Jerry's witness. They loved Jerry, but for love of his Lord, they have forgiven his killer. A number of lives have been changed as a result of his testimony. But in spite of the good things that came of his death, there is always the why, Barbara writes. As you say, we must let God be God. It's hard to explain, though, to a tired three-year-old when he wails, I miss my daddy. One of my greatest blessings and comforts came as a surprise about six weeks after my husband's death, when I discovered that I was pregnant with a baby conceived the eve of his homecoming, and how like the Lord in his perfect timing to present me with a beautiful child on Easter Sunday, the girl I had always longed for. There's a man who saw his duty to his nephew, saw the danger that obedience to God would involve, and had the courage to do it. Well, I can imagine there are quite a few people listening, saying, I don't have that kind of courage. I'm really chicken. Besides, nothing heroic has ever been offered to me to do. I'm just an ordinary guy, or just an ordinary woman. Well, that's true of almost all of us, isn't it? God doesn't give us heroics, usually. Those are rare, and they are given to people who have been specially chosen and specially prepared. Let's not doubt the truth of this story and think, well, nobody's really like that. God does know how to prepare and choose and shape and form those people to whom he gives heroic tasks. I think of my first husband, Jim Elliott, as one of the examples. He died at the age of 28, and he died in obedience to God, along with four other men who also died. Theirs was a simple choice to take the gospel to people who had never heard it. They knew the dangers. They understood the risks. 
they talked with us, their wives, about it, and God allowed it to happen. But there are some things that we do worry about, aren't there? We don't expect to be given heroics, but what about if this should happen or that? Some things which, if the truth were known, we're afraid of. I think of the Apostle Paul, who was certainly, in my opinion, a spiritual giant, but he was looked down on, and he was considered a weak man, and some commentators believe that perhaps he was a small man, small of stature. You who tremble in your boots when you think of what God might ask you to do, let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 2, 5. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence, or superior wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. God knows how to bring into your life the tests which will best shape you into the image of Christ. God knows how to support and sustain and strengthen you to bear whatever those testings may be. It just might be that God has picked you out to do something heroic. You don't have to worry about that now. You'll know it when the time comes. And when the time comes, it will seem like the most natural thing in the world. God will make it perfectly plain to you that this is what you have to do. As it was to Jerry... There was no question in his mind that he had to go to try to save his nephew, Gary. And, of course, in being obedient, he was shot by that same young man. But for most of us, each day brings small tests, where the Lord is simply saying to us, this is what I want you to do. Will you obey me? Will you trust me for the consequences? Sometimes... We shrink from obedience, fearing what it's likely to lead to. Will I be criticized? Will others understand that I did this for God's sake and not for my own? What if this or that or the other thing? 
What if it affects my wife and my children negatively? Have I got the courage to allow them to suffer by my obedience? That takes a special kind of courage, doesn't it? Supernatural. And it comes from God. It will be there when you need it. Your faith is to rest not on your own wisdom, but on God's power. And if the Apostle Paul confessed his own weakness, let's never be afraid to acknowledge ours. May God help us to be courageous for him. That was part five in our series, Appreciation for Men, One Man's Courage. We'll be hearing later from Valerie Elliott Shepard, Elizabeth and Jim's daughter, about uh, conscientious objectors. And uh, first, though, let's hear from one of Elizabeth's caregivers in her latter years, Samantha Lagoy. When did she first hear about the death of Jim and the other missionaries? I remember I was fairly young at the time and just the impression that it left upon my heart and my life, and even to this day. Just the willingness that they were willing to listen to the Holy Spirit's leading and guiding to go and try to reach a tribe who was unreached with the gospel because they loved Christ and the kingdom of heaven so much and the gospel so much. And they loved these people knowing that without Christ, they would be lost for eternity. And also to see Elizabeth's willingness to say yes to Christ and say, I am willing to go and share the gospel with this tribe who just murdered my husband, if that is what you're going to require of me. And although Elizabeth has said in her her own words that she never thought that God would require her to go back, but she was still willing to be obedient and willing to go. And because of that willingness and her sacrifice of being willing to go, and, and to love the very people that murdered her husband, to look beyond and be willing to forgive them and to see them through Christ's eyes. They came to faith. They accepted the gospel. They accepted what Christ had done on the cross for them. And they were saved. And I always think, at what price are we willing to pay for the gospel? Is there a price too great for the gospel? Will we see people through Christ's eyes that even the very people that murder our husbands, we are able to look and say, I forgive you and I love you and share the gospel with them that they too might find life. Are we willing to see things through Christ's eyes? He saw the whole picture. He saw the beautiful tapestry that he was creating and how he was going to take a tragic situation, an incredible situation, and turn it into a beautiful tapestry for his glory, for his kingdom, for his praise? Are we willing to be tools in his hands, even at such a cost? And can we honestly say it's such a cost when Christ himself laid down his life for our sakes so that we could be forgiven and live in eternity with him? At what price are we willing to be obedient? Are we willing to further the gospel? Life is too precious to hold it to oneself. Are we willing to share the gospel with another that they too might find the freedom, the love and the forgiveness that Christ offers each one of us? Samantha Lagoy, she was one of the caretakers for Elizabeth in Elizabeth's later years. 
We'll be hearing from Jim and Elizabeth's daughter, Valerie Elliott Shepard, a little later. But right now, let's go to part six of Appreciation for Men, The Fear of Weakness. I read a wonderful letter telling about the courage of one man in going to the cabin where his nephew had a gun. He had a strong suspicion that this young man, who was a very confused young man and had had a bad background and had a lot of hatred in his heart, he was suspicious that he was walking into some very real danger by seeking to disarm this man. His wife fasted and prayed while he went. And when she heard the car drive into the driveway, it wasn't her husband, it was the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to inform her that her husband had been shot and killed. We read a passage from 1 Corinthians which speaks of our faith being in God's power. That's where it has to rest. We are weak, all of us. Sometimes people come up to me and say, well, you're so strong, but I am not strong like that. I can't do what you do. If I appear to be strong, let me say, it's not my own strength. There are a lot of things that I have tried to do in my own strength, and I've made a mess of things. The words that I'm giving you on this program, I do earnestly intend to be always in conformity with what God says. We're talking about supernatural things, not about natural things. The things that we point to are the supernatural things. Of course, we are talking about the ways in which our nature and natural temperaments and emotions and all the rest of it are to be brought under God's control. It's God's power to which we look. Probably one of the greatest weaknesses common to men is the fear of revealing weakness. Am I right about that? Let me say that again. I think, probably, one of the greatest weaknesses, which is common to men, is the fear of revealing their own weakness. Women, on the other hand, talk about problems. I don't really think men talk much about problems. I heard a psychologist on Dr. Dobson's program one time say a very interesting thing about an observation that he had made of the differences between men and women. And he said, women talk about everything. Men don't talk about much of anything. They tell stories. And I've been thinking about that ever since. It's been a number of years since I heard that. But I think it's generally true that men certainly don't talk about everything. Maybe they do a lot of things besides telling stories. They like to tell stories, too. But they talk about sports and money and business. But they don't, generally speaking, as far as I know, and maybe I'm wrong, it doesn't seem to me that they're likely to share their weaknesses with each other or to talk about problems. In fact, my husband, Ad Leach, one time said to me, the reason that men would never be interested in talking about the subject of marriage would be because it would be an admission that there might be problems. And if a man goes for counseling, it is an admission that he's got a problem. Men don't like to have problems. 
well, maybe I'll get some really angry letters from people saying, you have made some outrageous statements, and that's your prejudice. But there might be somebody listening to me who will be helped by the things that I have to say today about men's weakness. And let me use the example of the great Apostle Paul. He, a strong, powerful, godly man whom God had completely transformed, a man who had actually persecuted Christians and thought he was doing God a favor by killing them, was transformed, wasn't he, when he was on the road to Damascus. He was struck to the ground, and God said, Why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you persecute. Paul thought it was just these Christians that he hated that he was persecuting, and he found out that he was, in fact, persecuting the Son of God, and he was completely converted. But he has a lot to say about weakness. He, a giant in the faith, a hard-hitting messenger from God who brooked no nonsense from the Christians he was responsible to teach, he was a man who spoke candidly and humbly about weakness. In 1 Corinthians 12, he refers to a strange and unusual spiritual experience that he had had. And in verse 7, he says to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times... I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That little story is one of the most important ones in the whole Bible, I think. Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. He prayed that God would take it away, prayed three times, and God's answer was, no, I'm not going to take it away. My grace is all you need an answer to those who would say that if you have enough faith, God will heal you of your physical diseases. Often God wants to heal you. Often he does. But then there are the times when his answer is no. You don't need a miracle. I'm going to leave that thorn there for a while so that you can learn the far more important lesson. My grace is sufficient. And you will not be able to receive that grace in all its fullness until you acknowledge your weakness. Until you say, yes, Lord, I will accept this thorn, this weakness, this problem, this insoluble thing. I receive it gladly. I begin to learn to delight in it as I receive it. Paul says, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, hardships, persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And he goes on in verse 15 of that chapter to say, I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. 
He was willing to spend and to be spent. And in the following chapter, he speaks of Christ's weakness, a very important concept. He says in 2 Corinthians 13, On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. Now, Paul is writing here to the church in Corinth, and he, being an apostle, has authority in that church, and so he is going to have to go back and straighten out some difficulties. But he says, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, I want you to remember that he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he, Christ, was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him to serve you. It's overwhelming to think of the fact that the Lord of the universe, the hands that formed the stars and everything that is made, that he was put into the hands of sinful men and nailed to a cross. Those hands that shaped the shell on the beach, that shaped the baby that lies in your arms, that shaped everything in this world, those hands were nailed to a cross, helpless, immobile. He was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. I don't know today what your weakness is, you who are listening to me. You know some of your weaknesses. Most of us could write quite a long list. And yet, as we grow older, God reveals to us weaknesses that we've always had that we never even thought of as weaknesses, and thereby gives us the opportunity to draw on his power for overcoming those weaknesses. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Even though we may seem to have failed, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is for your perfection. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Do you fear weakness? Well, that's part six in Appreciation for Men, the fear of weakness. Well, before we go, let's hear from Valerie Elliott Shepherd, Jim and Elizabeth's daughter, as she talks about conscientious objectors. David writes here, My father was in the military uh, during the war. He went uh, with Jim to Wheaton. And wondering if Jim had any connections with the military during World War II. No, he was a conscientious objector. Uh, growing up in the Plymouth Brethren Assemblies, uh, he definitely did not believe that men should go to war. So he was able to opt out of being a soldier when they were all being drafted. 
And the other man that worked with him among the Quechua Indians, uh, Pete Fleming, was also a conscientious objector. He was also Plymouth Brethren. Um, but the other three guys, I think at least two of them, Roger Udarian and Nate Saint had been in the army. So they had lots of discussions about going into the Alcas with a gun or a couple of guns to, for self-defense. Of course, they didn't want to kill any Alcas, but they also knew that because of panthers or poisonous snakes, they might need a gun. So they did take a couple of guns in. The conscientious objector issue was not there's not a whole lot of writing between my mother and dad about that at all. And my mother had two brothers that were in the military. Valerie Elliott Shepard. Well, our time together is just about over, but hey, thank you for letting us come into your home, your office, maybe along with you on that walk. Wherever we found you today, on behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out all the resources at elizabethelliot.org, more Gateway to Joy programs, devotionals, and more at elizabethelliot.org. And if you get a chance, leave a review for us. Thanks. Until next time, may God remind you daily that you're loved with an everlasting love. Underneath are the everlasting arms 